What is up, Bitcoiners? It is your boy, CK, and I had an awesome conversation with Craig Warmke, Professor Craig Warmke. He is a professor of philosophy, and he is into Bitcoin. He is one of the few out there who is really diving deep into this nascent technology and thinking, you know, what does it do to humans? What does it have to do with philosophy? Why is Bitcoin good? This is a really wide ranging conversation. And we talked about a ton of different things ranging from Tesla, uh, you know, uh, pumping their Bitcoin bags all the way to, you know, why mom and dad, why people are going to adopt Bitcoin. Uh, I really enjoyed this one. And I think you guys will too. Before we get into the interview, though, I want to tell you about the Bitcoin 2021 conference. You guys, June 3rd, 4th, and 5th in Miami, Florida. It is going to be an absolutely amazing time. We are announcing speakers on speakers on speakers every single day. Just today, we announced Alex Gladstein. And by the time you guys listen to this podcast, that is going to be old news. We are at the Miami Mana Wynwood venue. It is one of the coolest venues in one of the coolest parts of the city. And it is going to be absolutely bonkers. There's going to be skate ramps. There's going to be epic speakers like Michael Saylor. You got to be there. It is going to be a complete Bitcoin takeover in the city of Miami, and you are not going to want to miss it. Use promo code Satoshi to save 10% off. Go to b.tc forward slash conference. Get your tickets there. Check out all your all the speakers there. And again, promo code Satoshi, save 10% off. CN Miami. Enjoy this podcast with Craig Warmke. What is up, Bitcoiners? Welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Magazine podcast. I am sitting across screen from Professor Craig Warmke. Craig, welcome to the Bitcoin Magazine podcast. Christian, thank you. Um, I've been listening to your podcast for a while. I'm a big fan, so it's nice to chat with you here today. Yeah, well, uh, I'm a big fan as well. Uh, I, you know, discovered you because of Twitter, the great kind of... uh, uh, I guess, information uh, propagation system that us Bitcoiners are, are using at large these days. But, um, you know, as soon as I discovered your account, I started diving into the work you're publishing and some of your tweets. And I invited you onto the Bitcoin Magazine Happy Hour. And uh, after that, it was pretty evident that I needed to bring you onto the show for a proper interview. So uh, I'm really excited to just, you know, find out, you know, more about yourself, uh, academics who are in Bitcoin, academics that are into philosophy um, that are in Bitcoin are few and far between. Uh, but, you know, to Bitcoiners, Bitcoin philosophies, you know, the, it, it's two peas in the pod. So I kind of want to learn more just, you know, how you came to Bitcoin, how, you know, what is your story? Oh, good questions. So I, you know, I did my PhD in philosophy at UNC Chapel Hill. And um, I started working here at Northern Illinois University uh, uh, several years ago, but, uh, a few years ago, this was late 17, early 2018. I got cut up, caught up in the, the hype. And I was interested in whether, um, Bitcoin was a bubble or not, um, whether it would succeed, succeed through the mania. And so I started looking into it, you know, what, what could it offer the world? What was it doing? How did it work? And I'd say, uh, within a few weeks, I was—I uh, just found it so compelling. Um, I thought I should devote some research time to it. And so um, when the semester ended, <laughs> I started 
uh, I started to write. And so I've written a few papers. Um, and uh, several months after that, I, uh, I found some um, friends. And these are friends I've known for several years. But, I, you know, I didn't know really that they were as into Bitcoin as I was. Um, and so their names are um, Andrew Bailey and Bradley Rettler. They're also philosophers. So you're right. Th there are very few philosophers who have any interest in Bitcoin, but we are three of them. <laughs> uh, and that's probably um, the most of us. And um, we put up our, our work on uh, this website called resistance.money. Um, and we've been writing about uh, several diff different issues. Um, uh, individually, I've been writing about what Bitcoin is and how it works. And then with them, We've been writing about um, whether Bitcoin is overall good and uh, the ways in which it's good and, and um, the ways in which its, it's um, goodness <laughs> trumps the trade-offs. I guess there's kind of multiple ways where we can take this, but yeah. um, I would like to hear, like, you know, w what's your kind of explanation for why is Bitcoin good? And, and from, uh, I guess, a phil phil uh, philosophical perspective, why the world needs Bitcoin? Yeah, so... Um, well, I'll start with I will start with a bit, a bit of a story here. So um, in the Crypto Anarchy Manifesto by Tim May, the last paragraph, he he discusses barbed wire. And uh, actually, I, I'm in DeKalb, Illinois, which is where modern barbed wire was invented. And so this paragraph um, really strikes a chord with me. But uh, barbed wire, um, according to Tim May, was was this um, way of protecting your property rights, you know, your land, <laughs> some of your belongings. And uh, he says that cryptography is a way to undo um, the, the, the metaphorical barbed wire that surrounds intellectual property. So whereas physical barbed wire protects physical property, May thought that the, one of the primary uses of crypt cryptography was to demolish um, intellectual property and make it free for everyone. But I think if um, he were alive right now, um, he recently passed, I think he would um, grant that there's another way in which cryptography is very useful. And that's that cryptography also protects information in, in, in the, a, a similar kind of way that barbed wire protects land. Um, cryptography can, can um, provide like um, a kind of insurmountable wall that protects information from the outside world. And I think that's um, a good thing um, for people to have the power to selectively reveal parts of themselves so that they aren't revealing everything about themselves to everyone at the to everyone in the world all the time, um, and and the way um, I think that's beneficial, or the reason I think that's beneficial, is because our payments um, reveal our preferences. Uh, what we pay for reveals something deep about us, our desires, um, everything from. Um, the charities that we give to, to the people that we're connected to, um, the people that we love, the stores that we frequent, you know, all sorts of things. And so um, one way in which Bitcoin, I think, is overall good is that it gives people um, this privacy enhancing power. Of course, it's not perfectly um, 
it's not perfectly good at protecting privacy. It's not anonymous, but it does help people to enhance their privacy. I think it will in the future. I, will, I think it will continue to, and it'll, it'll help um, people um, selectively reveal their preferences um, that are otherwise revealed in their payments to other people. And those payments right now, um, I mean, they are um, uh, spied on <laughs> and sold to other companies. These are the trusted third parties that um, that serve as uh, checkpoints. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, central authorities. Um, so um, without those, I think that uh, Bitcoin can enhance our privacy. And I think it's an overall good thing, even though um, privacy, of course, is also helpful to criminals um, and people do very, very bad things. Um, but I think right now, if you look at um, the way that you know, the U.S. dollar is used to fund criminal activity, it's um, it's it's much more percentage-wise than than what Bitcoin is used. And, you know, Bitcoiners know this. Um, and the criminal activity um, that people in, in, engage in through Bitcoin will only increase. Um, that's my prediction over the next several years, because criminals prefer um, um, very liquid forms of payment. You know, once once they're <laughs> um, once they um, get money, they want to be able to offload it without being found. And having um, a big source of liquidity is very useful. So as Bitcoin becomes even more liquid, I think it'll be used for more criminal activity, but it won't be used for much more criminal activity. In, 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 I mean, this is my view um, than the U.S. dollar. So like privacy is one way in which I think it's overall good. Another is um, uh, uh, censorship resistance, <laughs> you know. Um, so um, lots of people um, around the world, they live under totalitarian governments. Um, these governments and um, uh, even uh, corporations, uh, maybe under the watchful eye of their governments, they um, have the power to um, block transactions, shut down accounts, and so on. And I think having um, an escape valve, an escape route for people is, um, is, is valuable. I mean, I think a lot of the pushback I've gotten from fellow academics about Bitcoin um, it's, it, and this is, I think, ironic. It, it literally stems from a kind of Anglo-centric perspective where all they see about Bitcoin is the rising price and the, and the, um, the speculative nature of it in the, mar- in the U.S. markets. They don't see these other things because they don't know. And, and so one of the things that, you know, Andrew and Brad and I want to do is we want to, you know, show people that there's more to Bitcoin than its price, um, um, of course, that's a that's a good thing, and we think it, that plays a role in the censorship resistance and the privacy and so on, um, making it to more people's hands. Um, but it, but you know, it's insofar as um, um, what what academics need to know, we think that they um, would be better off if they knew about the about how the Bitcoin network worked. Um, how it provided censorship resistance, enhanced privacy, though not perfect privacy, um, in certain ways to include people financially that otherwise um, um, might have, you know, uh, not great access to uh, financial products. 
So I think this is actually an interesting direction to take. You know, you you I'm actually surprised by how much you're honing in on Bitcoin's tangible features. Um, you know, where like a lot of times when I think of like the philosophy behind Bitcoin, I'm like, you know, Bitcoin is sound money and how does sound money affect human action move that adopts it, right? And then what happens when a society adopts sound money? And of course, it needs all of the kind of like specific features that you're honing in on uh, in order to like ultimately produce that final sound money product on the internet, which uh, Bitcoin, you know, is is trying to be, is competing to be. Um, I'm kind of curious, like when you think about big ph- ph- philosophy around Bitcoin and kind of like the bigger picture, you know, I got, what what's kind of your point of view there? Uh, oh, well, this is a, such a wide open question. Um, so my, yeah, so, so let me put it this way. And, and a lot of my thoughts here owe to Brad and Andrew, because we talk every day and, you know, there are thoughts, we have like a mind meld, our thoughts kind of bleed in. So, um, they're probably responsible for some of these thoughts, but, um, so on the one hand, um, I, I think having a sound money um, option is is very good, and I think um, that sound money option is very important to um, the sort of justice that Bitcoin can provide to the world. Why would that be? Well, um, I think that Satoshi was not only a good engineer when it comes to um, distributed systems. Um, and just a good engineer generally. I also think he was a good um, social theorist and that he understood how people worked. So suppose Soshi, Satoshi had um, used you know, a 20% inflation rate <laughs> instead of the disinflationary rate that he did use. Would people have bought in? Even if it were just, you know, it, all the other properties the same, would people have bought in? Would you have wanted any? It's hard. To, it's hard to tell if anyone would pay attention if number wasn't going up yes. for whatever reason. Number has to go up. Number go up is the core value proposition of Bitcoin when it comes to people like us. If if number didn't go up, we wouldn't buy in, and if we didn't buy in, we wouldn't have access to freedom money. So. Um, so Satoshi, I think, knew that um, we are um, greedy little <laughs> creatures. We want number go up. And the only way to do this is to have either a very low inflation rate um, or a disinflationary rate um, or something like a, a limited supply maximum cap from the very beginning. Um, I think that, I mean, of course, you know, the, you know, the, the, um, the 10 minute blocks, the, the 21 million. I mean, these were arbitrary numbers. Um, other numbers would have done just as well. But having a maximum supply with a disinflationary rate, um, that's what motivates people to buy in. And then having bought, they have access to this censorship resistant um, privacy, like privacy enhancing money. And so, um, so I think that I think that the rising price it can put some academics off because to them um, I think a lot of them they don't especially philosophers they don't like to talk about money openly and um, and Bitcoin 
um, if they don't know how it works, it looks like a Ponzi scheme. Like it looks like from what they see, a lot of people are buying in so they can so that they can sell at a higher price and make a profit, and they just want to sell to the next idiot down the line. And I think this is a mistaken view of um, uh, Bitcoin's value proposition. Yes, of course, the price is going up, but Satoshi designed it that way so that we buy in so he could give us something that's even more valuable, which is um, money that inhabits a distributed network that's um, censorship resistant, you know, global, you know, borderless and so on. Yeah, I love how you broke that down, but um, effectively, you know, Bitcoin is a higher order uh, uh, level values system kind of disguised as a get rich quick scheme. Um, and uh, Ansel Linder, my co-host of FedWatch, he said it really well multiple times, Bitcoin Alliance incentives. Like Satoshi yeah. understood human incentives so well that he created a system that, uh, you know, you know, kind of struck at the core of human incentives perfectly to some degree. But do you agree with that? I do. I do. I mean, um, so I have... I have some favorite philosophers, <laughs> um, or at least some favorite um, intellectuals, um, people who've produced work um, in human history. Um, one of them is is Bach. Um, Bach, uh, I mean, I, I can I, I I conceive of him as an intellectual, um, not a philosopher, but um, he he produced massive amount of beautiful music in almost near anonymity. I mean, no one really knew about him and no one really appreciated his work until after he was gone. And so I, I really appreciate that about Bach. That's, I think um, Bach serves as a role model in this way. Uh, it's not about the ego for Bach. Um, another one is um, Leibniz. <laughs> um, Leibniz is a, um, actually they, they, they lived, they, their lives overlapped uh, around the same time, around the same area of Europe. Um, and this is in the 17th century um, around Germany. Um, Leibniz, of course, invented the calculus. And he, 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 he was at heart a philosopher. Um, but he just developed these beautiful systems and, and um, could systematize just a vast amount of information and make it into a coherent, plausible story. Satoshi is another one. And I... I um, I think Satoshi is probably still alive, um, but I think that Satoshi is, it, Satoshi's mind is on this kind of level. Um, so someone who's very special, who one, doesn't care about the ego like Bach, and two, has this kind of uh, beautiful way of, of constructing something out of different parts in an elegant way, like Leibniz. And um, so I have a lot of respect for Satoshi and, and, and um, another way in which Satoshi uh, was very smart is, is just in the way that you mentioned. Um, he understood how humans worked. He knew what makes them tick. And uh, I think that even if, you know, 100 years from now, um, something's happened to Bitcoin and um, Bitcoin, as we know, it doesn't really exist any anymore. The main ideas within Bitcoin will. And I think that um, 
Satoshi will have the sort of reputation as a thinker um, that uh, many philosophers think that um, Leibniz deserves. And I think my colleagues and several people in the philosophy world would be, I think, shocked to hear me say that. They think, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, but I just, I just don't think they know. I mean, I think that Satoshi deserves a Nobel Peace Prize for the way that he will eventually have helped people um, save money, escape poverty, flee totalitarian regimes, and protect their savings from irresponsible um, monetary and fiscal policies. I think that he deserves... Um, the Nobel Prize in Economics for the way that he constructed this kind of um, this distributed monetary network, which protects against hyperinflation. And um, I also think he deserves um, something like the Turing Award in computer science um, uh, for for the for the very same reason, solving this issue about coming to consensus when um, there are uh, people you can't trust on the network. So Satoshi, I think, is a very special person and, and one whose work I've um, found a lot of inspiration in. I want to talk about, uh, you know, something that you've mentioned several times, which is like your colleagues, uh, your fellow academics, especially yeah. in uh, philosophy. It's yeah. not unheard of that, status quo academics miss something by 20, 30 years and then finally acknowledge it when it's just, you know, obvious. It, it's undeniable at that point. Yeah. Um, I mean, this, you know, you could talk about uh, antibiotics as, as a case uh, and then mm -hmm. maybe you can talk about Bitcoin as being the case. You know, to this day, I still think that the majority of academia shuns it has absolute disgust for it um, or just no respect. Um, yeah. And then here you are saying Satoshi should win every prize um, at the <laughs> yeah. same time. Yeah. So like how, how, how can you how try to explain? Yeah. This, this, just this gap here. Yeah. That's a great question. I mean, a lot of it has to do with sociological factors and um, in academia and how academics work and what the incentives are. Speaking of incentives, so let's get the obvious explanations out of the way, which are true, and they partially explain Bitcoin's reputation among academics. So one, there's a political stink. So um, Bitcoin undoubtedly grew out of the cypherpunks. And the cypherpunks um, were largely libertarians and crypto anarchists. In... In contemporary academia, these political ideologies are radical. They're radical. And not the right kind of radical. <laughs> um, so many academics are radical, but not that, but not that kind. <laughs> um, and so Bitcoin has a bit of a, a political and ideological stink on it, which prevents people from looking at it in the first place. The second explanation, which is, I think, fairly obvious, is that Bitcoin is relatively new. I mean, it's only 12 years old, and 
Um, philosophers especially, but academics in general, they move slowly. They have academic projects that can span four to five years. And a lot of them just don't work in areas that touch, touch on um, uh, Bitcoin. And so uh, specific questions about Bitcoin, um, they, they haven't achieved any sort of Lindy effect. So especially for philosophy, questions that we work on, philosophers have been working on for thousands of years. And so they have a kind of respect as respectable questions to work on that are worth devoting your life towards answering. And since Bitcoin has only been around for you know, 12 years, there's no, it's, it's impossible to, for it to have this kind of reputation. And um, so maybe, maybe several hundred years from now, um, there will be um, whole departments devoted to, um, you, know, uh, you know, not Bitcoin specifically, but, um, but questions that relate to Bitcoin. I think that's possible. I mean, my, my hope is that um, within the next 10 years, um, someone with deep pockets would fund like a interdisciplinary research, research center in this way, and that could happen. Um, but those are the two kind of obvious uh, explanations. But there's a third one that I think maybe some non-academics may not, may not realize. And that's this, um, that Bitcoin is in essence... Um, multidisciplinary, okay? Um, in order to understand it and how it works, um, it's like opening up the pantry, you have to pull down some computer science, some economics, some mathematics, um, some philosophy. And nowadays, that's not how <laughs> um, academics work. That's not how the sausage is made. And why is that? Um, right now, uh, Everyone has an incentive to hyper-specialize. Why? It's either publish or perish. You've probably heard that. Well, it's hard to publish creative new ideas on big questions quickly. <laughs> and so what do you do? You shrink the problem and down to the smallest problem you can possibly shrink it into and then you write a paper. And so, um, so if you think of like um, the, the, the knowledge that, um, that is like swirling around in the ivory towers um, as, a, as a kind of tree, you, know, you, can't, you can't just grab onto like a big branch. You have to go all the way to the tippy top to the little twig off the twig off the twig and say, okay, that's my spot. Um, because otherwise you won't be able to produce the work. And this kind of hyper-specialization um, and just, just like sociological historical factors, um, it, it be really began in earnest in the, the mid 20th century when, um, this is kind of bizarre, um, but um, the, the US government gave a lot of money to colleges and universities uh, to hire extra academics because they wanted to outcompete other countries in the world. And so, um, and this was a, a very, I mean, special time for academia. I mean, it was, it was like probably like the golden age. Because I, I, the way I see things now, things are kind of in decline. 
Um, and part of the reason they're in decline <laughs> where I am is that people hyper-specialize and it's very uninteresting. And because um, these small questions, um, the smaller the question that you're tackling, the less likelihood that it will matter to anyone. And I think this is definitely true in philosophy. If people knew <laughs> the kinds of questions that philosophers worked on, I think people wouldn't want to have their taxes go towards it. Okay. Um, and so, <laughs> and so Craig, can I, yes. I, I don't mean to interrupt, but yeah. um, you know, really what you're saying is that, um, is that uh, what's the word I'm, I'm blanking on right now. Uh, but uh, subsidies create misallocation of capital, which creates the incentive for academics to hyper-specialize rather than thinking more big picture. And I mean, if you yeah. were to talk about Bitcoin, I would say that Bitcoin, in order to understand Bitcoin, you must have, you must take on the characteristics of a polymath. Like you yeah. just said, you, you, it takes a little bit of everything. And hey, I, I majored in communications, but I did a minor in business. I did research in open source uh software development and communication like you know like strangely like i had the cocktail that made me multidisciplinary enough to grok bitcoin yeah. but if you're hyper hyper specialized it's very very difficult because you're right like bitcoin in any one circle is uninteresting right especially like even like uh, super hard on the tech circle it's uninteresting that's why you see these tech geniuses all in the altcoins because they want to do this complex thing but they are missing the bigger picture yeah and and i think that's exactly right and there's a um in in academia there is um a lot of missing the point <laughs> um you know why why are we here why are we doing what we're doing um, for a lot of people, it's, well, to write these small papers to get a paycheck um, um, or or write these papers, talk with their friends who write these small papers and then get a paycheck. And uh, I think, I mean, so of course, this doesn't apply to everyone. There are special cases everywhere. Um, but you're exactly right that it's the perverse incentive structure that explains why things are the way they are here. And um, it takes uh, it takes real risks for academics to say, you know what, I'm not going to do that anymore. I want to work on something that's interesting and I'm going to have to learn some, some new areas of inquiry. Um, and that's both dangerous and exciting and also time-consuming and risky. Um, so... So, for example, um, when when I chose to jump ship <laughs> um, from what I was doing uh, to to devote most of my time to Bitcoin, I was only halfway through my tenure clock, meaning that I meaning that I only had three more years to um, produce enough work in order to um, hopefully earn tenure. But this means that I had to devote all this time to learning before I could write. So that was risky. And, that, and that's a risk that anyone would have to bear in order to, you know, leave their research projects and then start something new. Um, if they're already um, firmly entrenched in a job. 
Um, and then beyond that, you have you suffer, I think, reputational risk. So I think that most most philosophers would probably think that I'm out to lunch. Um, they would probably wrongly think that I'm like a, a radical right winger <laughs> um, because I'm interested in Bitcoin. And and, and so these are the risks. And, and this is why um, it's it's so valuable to find people like Andrew and Brad um, who who will collaborate and uh, and answer these questions uh, with you. But um, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's um, it's the per- perverse incentive structures that that puts puts obstacles in front of people um, who might otherwise be interested. And I think that I think our best hope is um, other than time, um, which I think will heal uh, many wounds here, is um, is to find young academics maybe who haven't finished yet and say you should work on Bitcoin. Um, and so that they can start from the very beginning and they don't have to risk things like, you know, not having enough publications to get tenure. Yeah, it makes sense. And I mean, absolutely pivoting during tenure, I could see is being a very, very stressful thing. Um, I, I penciled in a, a question here just because I assumed you had thought a lot about philosophy, a lot more than me. And then maybe you kind of thought about what uh, a, a world run on Bitcoin would look like. Um, I feel I asked this question a lot, yeah. I guess, but I, I, I sense that you might be someone who is strangely uh, qualified to answer. Oh, well, probably not. But um, let me st- take one step back. And um, since I mentioned Leibniz before, I'll, I'll tell a Leibniz story to kind of work into um, what I'll say. So, Leibniz, in my view, is one of the smartest people who's ever lived. He probably made more more contributions to more academic fields than anyone since Aristotle. But he was, he he very, um, he understood people very well. In, In the same kind of way that Satoshi understood people, the way that Leibniz understood people is he knew not to throw um, pearls before swine. And so Leibniz was an an idealist in the philosophical sense, um, not like just being optimistic, although he was optimistic. But I mean, he thought that material reality was um, uh, a kind of simulation that, that we all inhabited a kind of coordinated dream world, kind of like the Matrix, except if you unplugged, you wouldn't see anything because there's no further physical reality behind it. Um, we're all just kind of immaterial minds and we all, and God feeds us, um, God has endowed us with sensations that coordinate everything. It's, it's really wild. Uh, but he didn't want to tell people this. He didn't want to tell people this. Many of his correspondents were um, like Catholic theologians who were emotionally invested in their view of the world which included the view that there were mind-independent physical objects. <laughs> you know, the kind of view that most of us have. And in correspondence, Leibniz would rarely ever with them directly reveal what his overall views were. He would take note first of what their were, views were. And then he would think, okay, how do I how do I get them 
one step closer <laughs> from where they are to where I am. And then, and then he would give the argument to go one step closer from where they were to where he was. He wouldn't just reveal the whole system and try to um, help them cross the bridge the whole way at once. Just one step at a time. Okay, so why am I telling the story? Well, um, so many Bitcoiners think um, one of several things, which I think has a tendency to put off people in the wider public. Uh, one might be libertarianism. One might, another might be crypto anarchy. Another might be the idea that we're going to hyper Bitcoinize, um, in that fiat is a, you know filthy, dirty fiat is a thing of the past, and we're not going to have any any of it. And and I I wish I wish more Bitcoiners took Leibniz's strategy and saying, okay, what do you think? What are your problems? Okay, let's take you one step closer to where we are. And so that one step closer might be um, we're losing financial privacy to corporations who have no interest in protecting our privacy and, in fact, have every incentive to broadcast the things that we buy to the entire world. That's a bad thing. That's a problem that that Bitcoin fixes. Um, or, um, um, you know, some people in the world, because of their political or religious views, um, they can't open a bank account or their, or their money gets confiscated or, you know, or, and or, and or. Um, Bitcoin fixes this. And it doesn't have to totally replace fiat. It doesn't have to, we, we don't um, have to say, that everything is going to hyper-Bitcoinize or have fun staying poor, uh, even though I, I do think that's funny. <laughs> um, um, but I think that um, we can market Bitcoin in an intellectual way um, by just noting these um, incremental improvements over the system that we already have. Okay, now having said that, um, you know, do I, um, what do I think about the future? Um, uh, well, specifically a world run on Bitcoin, a world run like, on Bitcoin. What does yeah. that do to human action from, yeah. a philo- from a philosopher's perspective? And I really like how yes. you built that up. And I agree. Gigi yes. once told me show lightly. And I feel like that's yes. what you just said in a very, um, in a, in a very roundabout way. Yeah. Good. Well, I, I partly go through this because I, I don't know how likely it is that the world will run on Bitcoin. I'm, I'm skeptical about that. I'm not as skeptical as I was. Um, I had a chat recently with um, <laughs> uh, Dhruv who said some pretty compelling things about how the world might go. And I'm less skeptical than I was. I'll say that. Um, but I, I, I just don't see this happening in our lifetimes. I think that fiat will be around for a while. And I think people will be happy to pay their taxes. Now, let's say, well, forget how unlikely you think it is. What if it happened? <laughs> would, it be, would it be good or bad? And I have to say, I don't know. And, I, I, and 
I want to say I don't know for a couple of different reasons. One, I'm not an economist and I'm not a psychologist. And if I were to issue judgments about this um, without prefacing it with, by saying like, I, who knows? I don't know. I would be an epistemic trespasser. Um, I've, I've honed my skills and tools on the territory of philosophy. And I, you know, it's, um, I would, I should be embarrassed if I, if I trot on over to the territory of economics or psychology and, and just, you know, issue claims like, you know, I had honed my skills over there, which I hadn't. And so, okay. So I don't know. Um, and I think it's unlikely. Um, and, and my opinion isn't very valuable, but what is it? <laughs> and um, I, you know, I, 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 I'm actually very torn about this. Um, I'm actually very torn. So, yeah. So, I mean, (laughs) economists will say that um, a low rate of inflation is good um, because it compels people, um, it compels people um, to pay for things which greases the skids of the economy. And do I know that that's false? Uh, No. Um, so much of it depends on human psychology that it, um, and, and um, material that I haven't read, I just can't say. So um, the question then is, would a um, non-inflationary um, or, or disinflationary, disinflationary currency um, be such that the economy would come to a grinding halt <laughs> um, precisely because um, this oil that was pre- previously um, greasing the skids is no longer around. And I, I suspect not because, you know, we don't live forever. We still want to consume things. We have desires. Um, uh, and so we're still going to pay for things, but would it slow down the economy? I don't know that either. Um, I just don't know. I mean, I think I can speak to my personal um, experience I, I, I began pricing things in Bitcoin for myself. Um, I mean, it, it took a long time, um, but it was this last price increase where, where I began to think of the opportunity cost of buying things instead of buying Bitcoin. And okay, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll, I haven't paid for a haircut in years. I haven't bought clothes in years <laughs> or shoes. Um, and so if more people were like me, um, would shoemakers and clothes makers and barbers be out of business? I don't know. Do you have an opinion on this? Well, I mean, it, if fiat didn't exist, would academics be out of business? Because clearly <laughs> the subsidies are allowing them to do things that are economically not viable. So yeah. who knows how deep the misallocation of capital runs? 
And Good. if you if that's your standard of what you want to preserve, then yeah, you know, Bitcoin's deflationary money is going to wreck a lot of shit. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. ultimately, I think like I think the one like it, this is a matter of time preference, right? The one thing that's more scarce than Bitcoin is time for yeah. each individual human. So that scarcity is going to push you to allocate Bitcoin to live, you know, to water, food, etc., shelter. But even more than that is like self-actualization. But now, yeah. hopefully, you can actually allocate capital effectively and at yeah. least actualize appropriately. I don't know. That'd be my take. Yeah, good. I mean, so so here are some questions that I would worry about under this kind of um, hyper-Bitcoinized world. One, um, there, there will always be the poor. And will they be taken care of? I mean, does the state take care of the poor well right now? And question. what's the cost of that care? I mean, it's a good question. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Um, but do we know what would happen to the poor under hyper-Bitcoinization? I guess you could historically look back and like see other times, but I don't know. Like that's a, a yeah. big mis- that's a big question mark. Yeah, I mean, are the so, poor being taken care of well right now? <laughs> this yeah. Again, like wh- where are we now? And uh, you know why yeah. why are we fearing uh, the future? Granted, you know our current pres- present state. Yeah, I mean, so this is, the, but these are the hard questions. Um, the hard the hard questions that I don't think. I mean, at least I don't know the answer to them. What would happen? To, yeah. So, um, so go back to, let's see, fourth, fifth century um, uh, Constantinople. Probably they had pretty sound money, um, precious metal, you know, stamped coins, you know, gold, silver. Um, and religious people took care of the poor um, and the crippled. So, I mean, I mean um, hospitals, orphanages, um, religious people did a lot of the work, um, not the state authorities. If in a hyper-Bitcoinized world, um, the government lost its ability to take care of the poor, other people would have to step in. And are there enough giving people charitable people who would do that. I mean, like, again, like this, these are the hard questions, right? Like my base assumption is that Bitcoin is a human's values delivery system. I've made several comparisons to religion and uh, I mean, it's just difficult to say like, here's the percentage of charitable people today and then reflect that to potentially what, how many charitable people would be in a Bitcoinized world. You know, it's just like the money is so deeply tied into uh, human action, in my yeah. opinion, and the, the quality of the money and the features of the money that um, I think that human action would be completely transformed. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It just makes it really hard to forecast, I guess, other than me just being hyper bullish. <laughs> so that's just my, <laughs> yeah. that's just my default state. No, I mean, these are totally different questions. Um, the question, there's, so there's one question. Um, will number go up? <laughs> and I think we both agree that's nearly inevitable. And then there's this other question. If it goes up enough and the world hyper-Bitcoinizes, what are the trade-offs? 
I think we have to admit that there are trade-offs. It's not going to be, it, it cannot be a perfect world because if Bitcoin is as good of money as we say it is, people want to steal it. People want to hurt other people to get it. And that, and that alone will um, present issues within a hyper Bitcoinized world. But what are the other trade-offs? And I just, I don't know. I mean, I think you're probably right about some of the benefits. Um, um, but but I think the trade-offs might be hard. I mean, um, are, there, are there anything, any projects that taxes provide that we wouldn't be able to provide under hyper-Bitcoinization, <laughs> um, which are good things? I think some people would say no. <laughs> um, Bitcoiners might say that. Yeah, yeah. But there probably are some good things. Um, but yeah, who knows? Yeah, I mean, like, I, you know, I, I, I it, it's, it's really hard to wrap your mind around, like, what this Bitcoin world is going to look like. Um, I personally think that number will go up. It's inevitable. It's just math as yeah. uh, Greg Foss would say. Um, and with that being said, like it will it be possible to resist. And if it is truly superior for economic calculations, then at some point it just becomes a no brainer for people just to switch over just because it's a better system, right? We've seen that yeah. happen with other systems where it's like one system is clearly better. Having a zero instead of Roman numerals is clearly better. You know, people dropped Roman numerals like they were hot. Um, just because it offered an advantage. And I, I feel like Bitcoin is that kind of level of advantage. So that's why, I don't know, like I, we, we won't have a choice. Like that, that, that Bitcoin world is happening. Um, yeah. Is it going to be good, bad, worse? Uh, I would say that uh, maybe you can disagree or agree with me on this, but the trajectory of humans is that we're making life better for ourselves, you know, exponentially. Yeah. And yeah, there's peaks and valleys, but um the again the trajectory is uh improved quality of life improved lifespan etc etc yeah this yeah, is right i mean as as bitcoin um gains steam here um i do think that other projects will pop up and maybe some of them already have which will um have a non-negligible percentage of the market share and that will be good for Bitcoin. I think that's good. Um, an- another, uh, um, because um, this is, so it's good in two ways. One way, it's another competitor for Bitcoin to slay. And as, as long as Bitcoin has competitors to slay, it'll get stronger. Two, these, these competing projects, they serve as what you might think of as regulatory diversions. So as um, so like, you know, some of these trick trick plays like in football, um, you know, you, you can uh, pretend you're giving the ball, handing off the ball to one guy and another guy to another guy. And you really give it to this other guy. That's Bitcoin, the one who really has the ball. But then all all the defensive players are trying to tackle the other guys. And I think that's going to be ha- that, that has been happening for several years now, and it will continue to happen as 
as governments go after projects that try to separate themselves from Bitcoin. And in separating themselves from Bitcoin, they break laws. Um, you know, they um, violate, you know, SEC laws they, and so on. Yeah. They, they also make Bitcoin like the counterexample of like not breaking laws, right? Like they, mm-hmm. they justify Bitcoin. I actually have the exact same right. opinion about altcoins as you. Uh, yes. I, I believe that altcoins are part of Bitcoin and that if there's kind of two things here, it's like Bitcoin and then the Hydra of shit. And the Hydra of shit <laughs> is just constantly DDoSing regulators. Yes. It's a constant DDoS. And honestly, it's a D like the general confusion is what Bitcoin thrives in because Bitcoin is anti-fragile by nature, right? So yeah. confusion is a is a is a healthy competitive state for Bitcoin to uh, dominate, which I think is commencing and is it's only being, uh, you know, further, you know, amplified by it, by the altcoins for sure. Yeah. I mean, there are these psychological studies on um, how we can manipulate people's choices by the choices that we give them. And I think, I think that this is the way in which the altcoin market is doing that to the regulators. Um, it's, it's, you know, do you, do you want <laughs> to regulate this thing or this thing, which is much worse in comparison? It's their job to, to regulate this thing. They have to choose to do that. And, and so Bitcoin is always going to look comparatively pretty good to those things. Um, so those are, those are two ways in which altcoins are good. But here's another reason why I think that Bitcoin can be successful in which and, and a reason why, at the same time, I think that hyper-Bitcoinization, um, it might be unlikely. It's a competitor to fiat currencies. And competition is good because it disciplines, the, it d- disciplines competitors. So as central banks and governments see Bitcoin succeeding for the reasons that it succeeds – they will have to discipline themselves for fear of being obsoleted. Okay. Now, if that's right, Bitcoin is a huge success. It improves the world all the way around just because it motivates people to behave better. And so you can have this huge success without having hyper-Bitcoinization and, um, I, I tend to think that this will happen in some cases. There will, be, there will be some central banks and governments who see what's happening and they're, they're, they will be smart enough to realize, oh, we need to behave better or we're going to be toast. Um, and I think that would be a huge success for Bitcoin. It would be a feather in Bitcoin's cap. I mean, I have no doubt that that's going to happen on on the road to obsoleting all central banks. <laughs> so, I mean, good good luck. So, I have a question yeah. for you. Do you know yeah. what the like strategically in like the '90s? What's the difference between Google's uh, search engine and Yahoo? Yeah. So, um, I read this book um, called uh, "How the Internet Happened" or something like that. Have you read this book? No. Okay. Yeah. So um, when when Yahoo was getting started with their search engine, search engine, um, they they had <laughs> scores of people manually constructing the, the uh, their own database of the internet, and so it was, they, they weren't using an algorithm like the PageRank algorithm that Google was using. This they were doing it by hand, 
which is insane to think of. So why, so why do you think this is relevant? Yeah. So you're saying that central banks, <laughs> AKA the Yahoo strategy is going to compete with Bitcoin, AKA yeah. the Google strategy. Yeah. 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 Like, well, it's, I, there's, there's no chance. They have no chance. This is, this is uh analog yeah. <laughs> monetary policy versus programmatic monetary policy and uh, cryptographic inf- uh, validation enforcement. Like yeah. they have no competitive chance in my opinion. And I, I just, Yahoo had no chance there. They were wrecked from day one. Yeah. They couldn't hire enough people. I agree. And I walked right into that one, by the way, but you don't think there would be one, one central bank to say, look, we need a constant rate, one that we can't change in response um, to I what mean, my, yeah. I call it hyper Bitcoinization because what are they going to peg that rate against? Yeah, it's possible. It's possible. I don't know. But, but what, don't what, know. What, what what timeline do you put on this? You, this might you you probably going to disagree with this, but I think the next ten years, the world's a different place because we mostly denominate in Bitcoin everywhere. Is that the idea? I, I feel like borders will have changed significantly. Um, people will have endured a lot and uh, we'll be entering kind of a, a new uh, a new time, a new cycle um, at the end of that. So I don't know. I, like, I personally think that this, you know, the roaring 20s is going to be a hell of a ride and uh, Bitcoin yeah. is the winner at the end of that. No, I agree that the 20s are going to be insane. Um, and I, I think this is possible, but 10 years would be fast. But, uh, but I mean, the last few years have been very fast. And especially this last year, um, hold on to your seat uh, because things have been absolutely blowing by. Even just the last few months, I cannot believe how things have gone. Um, like, like today. I mean, so this will, will date the podcast. Yeah, hit me. You're, yeah. you're asking me about what news I cared about today. What news do you care about today? I care about the Tesla news. The okay, Tesla, March 24th. So, yes. So Tesla announced today that they will be, <laughs> that Elon will be selling Teslas for Bitcoin. Okay. Why is that important? Well, I, the, Tesla is hacking Bitcoin's limited supply in ways I sh- maybe I should have imagined, but I hadn't imagined. And here's why. They already hold a ton of Bitcoin. The hodlers who will be paying Bitcoin for Tesla, they hodl Bitcoin, of course. So what's the winning play here? Well, if you're wealthy enough to buy a Tesla, you're wealthy enough not to buy Tesla out of your HODL stash. You can either get a USD loan on the Bitcoin that you hold, or you can just um, either take a a loan out of the USD that you have or just pay in cash. Um, uh, Okay, so suppose you have that disposable cash from either a Bitcoin loan or just sitting in your bank account. Buy Bitcoin with it, and then transfer that Bitcoin to Tesla 
so that every hodler who does this and buys a Tesla takes a Tesla's worth of Bitcoin off the market. That helps Bitcoin appreciate that's already sitting on the balance sheet of Tesla and in the Bitcoin addresses of the hodlers. So what they've, what they've grabbed here is a way to help increase Bitcoin's price. The price of the Bitcoin that they already have by accepting more Bitcoin. It's a kind of virtuous feedback loop. It's self-reinforcing. It's the self-reinforcing nature yep. of the move that to me is genius <laughs> and it makes me think that more that there are other ways to do this maybe that I just haven't thought of. And I just, I'm just out Craig, of Yes. Satoshi really understood human incentives. Yes. And I mean, like, I think you just walk through, you know, what Tesla's doing on a really, really like zoomed out lens. But like, ultimately, those incentives exist for literally everyone that values Bitcoin. And everyone that values Bitcoin living in a world where there is zero, you know, 0% interest rate, super cheap fiat debt. Um, It it creates the incentive and um, the, you know, unstoppable urge to uh to speculative attack or uh or you know borrow yeah. against the weaker currency and buy the more expensive one yeah that's right and so I, I you know i hadn't really thought of it this way but what tesla's doing is what hobblers have been doing for years they take bitcoin off the market hoping that you know with less bitcoin on the market the bitcoin that they already they've already taken off the market will increase in value um it's just the, the way, the scale, the scale that it's happening now with MicroStrategy and Tesla is unimaginable. And it's just the beginning, folks. It is just the beginning. Craig, yeah. I had a lot of fun on this conversation, man. This was yeah. a lot more wide ranging than I had anticipated, but I think the listeners are going to really enjoy this one. Um, I want to give you one to give a last word. Like, you know, if you could tell the Bitcoin Magazine audience anything, what would you say? Yeah, so um, you know, we didn't really talk much philosophy. You're right; it was very wide ranging. I really enjoyed it. So thanks for having me on. Um, if you'd um, like some papers that are uh, philosophical um, but accessible, go to resistance.money. Um, and I and um, Bradley Rettler and Andrew Bailey. Um, would love would love to chat about Bitcoin and philosophy with you, and so uh, we hope we hope to be uh, writing more and more as um, Bitcoin continues to go up. Well, you guys got to do uh, some philosophy clubhouses or something. Um, I feel like there's something there. Yeah. So, are you have you been on Clubhouse recently? I've been running it for Bitcoin Magazine. Oh man. Okay. So I, I kind of been out of the loop um, for a few weeks here, but yeah, we would love to do that. Well, Hey, let's, let's talk off offline and maybe we can uh, help coordinate something. Maybe we can host. Um, and I guess, Craig, where can people uh, other than resistance.money, where can people learn more about you and kind of uh, get in touch with you or see your Twitter feed? Oh, sure. So uh, my, my Twitter account is just my name, Craig Warmke, W-A-R-M-K-E. 
And um, my, my full name is also my website. So if you Google me, you'll find me and I'd be glad to hear from you. All right. Awesome. Well, Craig, uh, I had a lot of fun on this conversation, really wide ranging. Uh, Bitcoiners, uh, you know, we usually agree on on the things that matter, but we don't necessarily agree on, you know, forecasting. So it's always fun to go back and forth and get extra cosmic. Uh, To all the listeners out there, make sure to go follow Craig. Make sure to go check out Resistance Money. Make sure to go follow me at CK underscore Snarks. Uh, Go follow Bitcoin Magazine and uh, give us those five star reviews. They really mean a lot. Uh, The show is growing really fast fast. So I appreciate all the Bitcoiners out there listening. Peace. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.